Alrighty, well let's pray, and then we'll, since there's no need to really do any introduction anymore, we'll just get rocking and rolling and, and dive right in. Father, we thank you for the new semester, we thank you that you've given us the ability to travel here on a Wednesday night and carve out an hour of our time to learn more about you, and specifically this semester learn more about our role in the church. Pray that it would be a beneficial hour together tonight and a beneficial semester as a whole. Pray that you would help us to sharpen each other, to encourage each other. Pray that tonight that you'd give me the ability to uh, be clear and to say things that are going to be beneficial and helpful and profitable for all of our thinking um, as we understand the nature of the church. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Welcome to number three. We have one more left, if we ever make it there. (laughs) Uh, I want to make an announcement now, try to make an announcement later and then make an announcement at the very end, and it's all the same. I just want to make sure you're aware. I'm not going to be here next week. So in your book, there's 12 lessons. We're not going to do the last one, because the last one is just a summary. You can read it for your own benefit, but we're not going to do a a discussion on it, because as you know, you should be accustomed to my teaching style by now, that I do summaries every week, and then... Like, every time we switch a section, I always do kind of more lengthy reviews. So I felt like it was kind of unnecessary, and I had a prior commitment with a friend of mine uh, before I knew when this was starting. So um, I will be gone next Wednesday. So for those people that aren't here, I guess they miss out. So <laughs> they can come next week. <laughs> So I just won't be here. Okay. We won't do class. I thought about like recording a, a class, but like, what do you do? I mean, no need to do that. So uh, I'll probably just either have Dr. Combs email everybody, or I'll email everybody in our class and just say, hey, remember, no class. So you can remind me as we walk through this to tell you that there's no class. <laughs> So this semester is Discovering Your Role in God's Family in Book 3. If you don't have Book 3, we have a bunch of copies up here. You can grab it. I highly recommend that you read this week's. uh, So obviously you have to be going backwards somewhat. But if you can take the time just to kind of skip all the muddiness and then just get to that article. The article did a really nice job of pointing out Uh, two important things, the centrality of the local church in God's plan presently in the earth, and then the other thing is that we are, as believers and as the church, models, and then given the message of reconciliation. And I thought that those are two excellent points that the author made, and it would be well worth your time to read the five or six pages of the article. So this semester... Here's what we're going to attempt to cover. 
And you don't have to write this down, but this is just kind of giving me the broad overview. We're going to spend the first three weeks trying to understand a little bit about the church, where it came from. Welcome. You need a book? (laughs) 30-minute train. (laughs) It was just parked there. When we came across, we must have just missed it. Yeah. Shame on those trains. (laughs) That that might be the 831's gone. (laughs) That, that would be good. That would be good. So the, the semester will be in two sections. Obviously, the second section is going to be heavier about the practical outwork, you know, outworkings of our participation in the church. And then the last section, which we're not doing, is just a one-lesson, one-off summary of everything. So obviously, our first three are going to be probably pretty re- – everything's going to be repetitive. But the first three are going to be more structure and then – the second section is going to be more practical. How do we do this? What does it look like? So that brings us to lesson number one, God's new community. And our goal tonight, which is at the top of your your handout, our goal tonight is to discover what the church is and how it fits in God's overarching plan. So to discover what the church is, and how it fits in God's overarching plan. And if you were, so for you, Carrie, you, we're gonna have. This is gonna be like fire hydrant, especially for you. So I apologize. But if you were here the last last semester when we talked about God revealed in the Old Testament, God revealed in the New Testament, we talked about God's big picture, and I'm gonna show that to you in just a second. What I really would like to try to do in accomplishing this goal of what is the church. And how does it fit in God's plan? I'd like to start at, at the wide end of that funnel and talk about God's plan. And then kind of just narrow our focus in and then conclude with, okay, so what is the church? But to understand what the church is, we need to kind of like get this bigger picture of God's overall plan. So if, if I could ask you this, what is God's overall plan? If you had to summarize that thing down into like a sentence or a couple words, what would you say God's overall arching plan is? Okay, so to glorify Him and to spread His word. That's good. Very right. Carrie, we talk in class, just so you know. You've probably taught this. You've been here forever. They hit me in the back with the children. Ah, excellent. Welcome. So God's overall plan is to seek his own glory. If you had to think of like two main ideas, and I know we were we talked about this in a lot last semester. If there were two main purposes that you could think of that God has what would they be? You just said one. To glorify himself and to... Change I'll, us to be like him. Yeah, or say said another way, God's glory and his people's good, right? Romans eight twenty eight. we know that God works together all things for the good of those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. So... If we could summarize everything that God's doing, 
way out here, way up here. Everything that God does is for His glory and the good of His people. But just think about that in relationship to what we're going to be getting to. God's new community, the church. God has a people. God has a group of people that He specially relates to. That in and of itself is amazing. What is, though, the good of His people? Making us more Christ like. Okay, making us more Christ like? It's Himself, right? I mean, it, it's God, Christ. That's, that's our good, right? That's God's people's good is having a relationship with Him. Because that perpetuates this sanctifying process of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. So, His glory is achieved by people, rebellious, sinful people, being made right, having a right relationship with Him, because Him is our good. So, here's the big picture that we looked at last semester. And I want you to know, even though it's really tiny, sorry about that, try to make it as big as I could. But note one of the biggest themes throughout this whole big picture of the story of Scripture is relationship. And it's really reconciliation. Because God creates, we're there in the garden, enjoying a right relationship with Him. God was... Adam and Eve's God, and he and they were his people. There was a relationship, and a right relationship. Then they sin. That relationship, that fellowship is broken, and now reconciliation needs to take place. God makes that seed promise, which is the promise that I, I suggested to you, ties everything together in Scripture. Genesis 3.15, the promise that there is going to be a serpent crusher coming who is going to just destroy that serpent. And that person we learn in the New Testament is Jesus. And then we see throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, God making good on His promise that He is going to restore, He is going to reconcile the broken relationship that man's sin has caused between Himself and them. And then, in the end... All will be reconciled, all will be made right again, and garden, the garden will be restored in the new heavens and the new earth, where our relationship will once again be fully and completely right with God, where He will be our God and we will be His people. And that's the big story of Scripture, that's the overall, overarching purpose of God. Now here's where it's going to get, we're going to narrow our focus in a little bit more, and this is where it's going to get a little bit... Uh, I hope not too theologically dense and tricky. But can any of you remember from our discussion last semester what one of the big covenants or the big Old Testament promises that kind of spoke to this idea of God having a special relationship with a certain group of people? And I'll give you a multiple choice question. Just Thank you. because this is early... 
you know, we're... we're, we're Karen's all over it. Yeah, the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant was a land, a seed, and a blessing, right? There's going to be a plot of land that God is going to give to Abraham and his and his descendants, his long line of descendants. God is going to give them, to them a seed, that is Jesus. And through that seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, right? And he's not just talking about physical blessing. The the main idea that we see, particularly in Galatians 3, is that it's a spiritual blessing that God had in mind when he penned those words all the way back in Genesis. And so what I'd like to suggest is that the Abrahamic covenant is the promise that sets the course for God's special relationship with all of those who will believe in The Abrahamic covenant. So now we're going from this overarching plan of God's glory, the good of his people, and that is by means of a relationship with him. So we have this broken down relationship because of sin, him pursuing reconciliation with us, taking great measures to make that happen, and now we see this, this initial big, big, big promise that really sets the stage for the rest of biblical history to us today. And it's the Abrahamic covenant. God chooses not by Abraham's credentials, not by uh, what God thought Abraham might be able to offer him, but God in his sovereign grace looked on Abraham and saw fit to choose him and say, I am going to initiate a special relationship through you and through all of your descendants. And so now we see that the stream of God's reconciliation and His grace flows through Abraham's family. What do we call Abraham's family? It grows up into being what? Israel. And the nation of Israel, right? So how would you describe the typical way that you would think of, you know, you hear Israel and you hear the church. If you had like these two categories and think, oh, Israel, and then there's the church. And then how would you describe the, the differences between those two? What? Okay, so we got Israel being under the law. Okay, and the church is under, sometimes we call it the law of Christ, or maybe we say the epistles, <laughs> you know, what what was recorded in the epistles. Maybe we even more generically would say, well, Israel is the Old Test in the Old Testament people of God, and church is the New Testament people of God, and we sometimes think of it in those categories. What else? Israel was a what? A nation. The church is not a nation. What what was Israel almost exclusively made up of? Ethnic Jewish people, right? And even once, so all of us are Gentiles, and pretty confident, right? Yes. Yep. So, 
if if we wanted to become part of the nation of Israel, we could. But we would have to subscribe to all of their stuff. But even still, once we got in, we were still held at a distance, right? Because you could only, as a Gentile, get in so far. How else would we describe the difference? So I want to, this is where it'll get a little bit dense, if it hasn't already. It's just going to keep getting denser, and I will emerge eventually. But one of the things that I would like to suggest, and I like that we have a little small, small close-knit group, because then we can get kind of deep and you cannot throw rocks at me. You can just throw peanut butter balls at me, okay? <laughs> two weeks, two weeks, you can throw those, and I will eat them all. But to, I think I think uh, sometimes too often we look at Israel and we think Old Testament. We look at the church and we think New Testament. And we think nation, not a nation, Jews, Gentile. And we think different, distinct, no connection, no relationship. And we like just like have these completely separate compartments. And there's truth to that. Sometimes in the theological world we call that discontinuity, which is like a really big word just to say that they're not the same. (laughs) But what I would like to to suggest, because I think that it's, and there's a lot of good men that disagree with this, so you can disagree with me and we can all be okay and, and love each other still. But I would like to suggest that the church isn't as disconnected from Israel as we sometimes want to think. So let me try to show that to you if I could. And it's not going to be flipping to a million passages, but I just want to kind of take you on a quick journey. And, and, and my hope is to show you this, okay? So that the Abrahamic covenant is this promise of blessing, spiritual blessing, salvation, grace, that God makes, and that through the nation of Israel, that promise gets perpetuated, and the nation of Israel is really the first people to enjoy that promise, but then it expands, it, it widens, and, and all of a sudden, the, the, the instead of being an exclusive group, we have a very inclusive group, and I don't mean that in a like universal sense, but an inclusive group in that all of a sudden people from all the nations are under this umbrella of God's saving grace in the church. So, let me attempt to show the connection this way. So, the Abrahamic promise was of a land, a seed, that is Christ, and a blessing, that God would be a blessing through this seed to all nations. And God chooses to begin with Abraham's family. 
Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, and it grows into this nation of Israel. And then we have all that is the Old Testament, the prophets and the kingdom, or the king, the kings and the kingdom. And we have the judges and, and all these different phases of the nation of Israel. We have, but yet we also see the nation of Israel continuing to defy and disobey God in a temple destroyed and a temple destroyed and then in AD 70 you have the temple finally destroyed to never be rebuilt again to date and I think that that destruction of the temple symbolized at least for a time possibly forever and this is where some disagreement comes the end of the national Israel as was understood back in the Old Testament but yet, there's always a remnant, right? Like that carpet remnant that you can go get for super cheap. But but there's always a remnant. There's always the real, true believers somewhere in the mix that are always existing that we could call true Israel, true believers, true uh, descendants of Abraham. Because Abraham was a man, we learn in the New Testament, a man of faith. Right? Paul describes Abraham as a man of faith in both Romans and Galatians. And all of his de- de- descendants are people of faith. And so we have this believing remnant, this people of faith. And all of a sudden, after 400 years of silence, the New Testament bursts on the scene. Jesus is born. Jesus dies. Jesus comes back. Or Jesus dies, he rises again, and then he promises that he is going to send his comforter. And 40 days later, on the day of Pentecost, who shows up? The promised Holy Spirit that Jesus promised, and that was promised to the nation of Israel in the promise of the new covenant at the end of of the Old Testament, that a spirit was going to come and the Holy Spirit was going to come and, and revive hearts and give new life to to dry, dead bones. And so we see this, out of this Jewish remnant, these Jewish people in Jerusalem, no less, Acts 2, the church is formed. What people were primarily made up the church when it was formed. Jewish people. Jewish believers. In Jerusalem, the center of the the religious epicenter of Israelite theology and worship, right? And then, is it not interesting that when we get to the very end of the New Testament, we find that there's 24 elders in this vision of the end times. Twelve of which most likely are referring to the twelve tribes of Israel, and the other twelve are referring to Jesus' Jewish apostles. Hmm. Maybe there's a little bit more of a connection than, than we think. And I guess the point that I, I'm trying to drive at is, is demonstrated here in this text where he says down at the end of verse 8 
that the scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham all the way back in Genesis that all the nations will be blessed through you so that those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So what I'm trying to suggest in probably a very unclear way is that this is all connected. That I'm not saying that the church is Israel or the Israel, Israel is the church. I don't care about any of that. But what I'm trying to show you is that at the end of the day, the church is an outgrowth of the remnant, the, the believers that were left over from the nation of Israel. That we, like Israel, true Israel, are people of faith. So I think that it's fair to say this. On the basis of Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, where he talks about where he talks about the trials and the temptations that, that come into our lives. And he talks about let's not make the same mistakes that our ancestors, our ancestors, speaking of Israel. And he talks about specific instances of Israel, the nation. Then in Ephesians 2, Paul talks about how we as Gentiles were once far off, but now we have been brought near and made heirs of these covenant promises. I think that it's fair to say that Israel's history is our history. That Israel's promises are our promises. That means that we can go back into the Old Testament and not feel so, as I have felt often in my life, like, what in the world am I reading? Like, this is crazy stuff. And I get into Paul... And I read about, you know, the book of Ephesians. I'm like, oh, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. You know, yeah, yeah, I should, you know, no hint of sexual immorality. I should be kind and forgiving. And, you know, I should put off and put on and not not slander. And, you know, I should be a good dad and loving husband. And, you know, I can go through all these things. I can get to Colossians and say, okay, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Yay! And all that stuff makes really good sense to all of us because we read it and we're like, oh yeah. But sometimes we that's so easy and sometimes we've had this potentially incorrect view of our relationship to the Old Testament that that Old Testament becomes like a foreign two-thirds of our Bible. We're like, yeah, that really doesn't matter. But if we see it, if I'm if I'm being fair and correct, I think it opens up our ability and our eyes to see the value and benefit of reading the Old Testament. That's just one of the, the many things. But it is amazing to me to think of the the reconciliation, the work of reconciliation that God has been doing. That He would take a very stubborn a very uh, repeatedly sinful bunch uh, of misfits in the nation of Israel. And he would reconcile those people to himself. And he's done the same thing with us Gentiles who were once far off, who were strangers to the covenants of promise. And now he has, according to Ephesians 2, brought us near. And he has done that, if you remember, he has done that through the church. The church is this new entity. It is brand new. But it is not completely unassociated with 
that which came before. It has grown out of that which came before. And it has it has bigger, more inclusive, expansive borders, does it not? Because you and I can join, and we can join that church, and we don't have to be kind of like at a distance anymore, right? We have direct and instant access to the throne room of God via Jesus Christ. We don't have to sit, even though we're in, we don't have to sit kind of like on the fringe. We don't have to sit there and wonder, do I get full benefits of my of uh, of this promise of repentance or, or of regeneration? No, I have the Holy Spirit indwelling my heart, just like He indwells your heart. And I'm a Gentile, and they're a Jew, and they get them too. So this all funnels down to. I'm, what I'm attempting is to... This is not a seminary definition of the church, okay? For which you'll be thankful. But this is this is my attempt at trying to simply provide a simple definition of what the church is then. The church is a diverse group of people. Whereas formerly the nation of Israel really wasn't that wasn't that diverse. But the church is a diverse group of people, and it's unified as one body. It's unified as one body in Christ and through Christ. And all of that is done by faith, or happens by faith. We become unified with Christ, if you remember some of the terminology that we used last semester, or maybe it was even the semester before that. When we talk about baptism. We are united to Christ. We are in Christ. If we look at the end of Galatians, if we are in Christ, we are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Well, how do we become in Christ? How do we be united to Him? It's by faith. By faith. We believe. We're believers. God's people are believers. That is a mark, if not the mark. They are believing people. They believe God. They believe what he has to say. So it's a diverse group of people. It's black. It's white. It's Asian. It's Hispanic. It's men. It's women. It's kids. It's young people. It's old people. It's people on their deathbed. It's it's little kids that are four or five years old. It's teenagers. It's people who are living anywhere in the world. That is the church. It's diverse. Yet, it's unified. It's people who might be handicapped. It's it's people who might be really good at art. Um, It might be people who are really good at math. It might be people who are good at construction. It might be stay-at-home moms who are just amazingly patient. It may be super stressed-out businessmen. You name it, the church can take it in. So it's a diverse group of people, yet it's unified. It's unified into or as one body, and it's unified because they are all united to Jesus Christ. So they are in Christ, that is their new identity, and it's through the work of Christ. By faith. By faith. Just as the people became part of the nation of Israel... The true Israel, the believing remnant, they were believers. So, 
people become part of the church by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. They're united to Christ, and thereby they're united to all of their believers. This is the church. So, let me offer a couple suggestions as to what do we do with this fire hydrant of information about the church. And probably uh, a suggested way of looking at it that might be slightly foreign to you. First off, read and benefit of all, all of Scripture. Every last bit of it. I am scared of the Old Testament sometimes. Maybe most of the time. I like Proverbs. I really, really like Psalm, the whole book of Psalms. But outside of that, it's a little scary. When you get into Leviticus, whew, look out, right? I mean, we've all been there. Or when we're reading the Kings and Chronicles, we're like, didn't I just read this? Or we're reading Prophets, and we're like, what in the heck are you talking about? But this is our history. This is our story. This is this is our heritage. There's benefit there. But we can read and benefit from the Old Testament because it's our story. Number two, I think we need to work hard to value the diversity within the church, particularly our local church. Value the diversity. I'm not trying to be... I'm not trying to say that in like a cliche or a, 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 a way that is kind of provocative or, you know, let's embrace diversity. You know, like, like people in the workforce would say. But I think we really ought to appreciate it. You know, we ought to appreciate those ladies who never get to come to a service because they're always in with our kids, loving on our kids every Sunday. I mean, that is a gift. Because that ain't me. That might not be you. I mean, could you imagine Pete and I rolling around on the ground with little babies all, day, all, all morning? I mean, we would be crying for help ten minutes in after, like, the first... I mean, I, I'm not scared of diapers, but Pete might be. I don't know. <laughs> But what about what about Pete? And what about John, who are always in the back doing who knows what with that stuff and making it work every Sunday? I mean, I'm not... That ain't me. Right? And what about the prayer team who behind the scenes, when you don't even know what's going on, is sitting there praying for Pastor Ken? I'm not part of that group. Or what about our little kids who one one Sunday a month march up and give money to our, our missionaries? I mean, they're part of it. And, and, and embrace the diversity. When we're sitting across from, for me, an older saint at our community groups on a Sunday night, I love listening to what they have to say. Because they've been there, they've done that, they've walked those hard steps that... I am either walking or about to walk one day. And to sit there and listen to people like Sally, who's in my group, or a person like Ron Biggs, and listen to the wisdom of people like them or the Pruitts, who have three amazing kids. 
And they've done something right. I don't know how they did it, but they've done it right. I want kids like that. I want Caden and Hadley just to be the sweetest things like their kids are. And embrace that diversity because they're not like me. I think we ought to, number, I guess this is three, promote unity. So embrace or value that diversity, but we ought to promote unity. And if we we are the church, we're a diverse group of people, we're united in Christ, so we ought to promote unity. So when there's disunity, we need to fix that. When there's problems, we need to fix that. Because there's something greater going on than just us. And that leads into the last. We as a church, and this this is where I again encourage you to go back to that article and read it, we must model reconciliation and we've been given the message of reconciliation. So we, we must be about reconciliation because our God is about reconciliation. And we've seen that tonight, hopefully, that if you walk away with anything, our God is a God of reconciliation, a God who brings himself glory by reconciling sinful people to himself. And he's about that, and he makes big promises like the Abrahamic covenant and and, and proves his faithfulness to that covenant through the nation of Israel and then expands that promise to all nations and blesses all nations with that ministry and gift of reconciliation. He has entrusted that to the church. So we, as sinful people, must model reconciliation as hard as that is. And we must promote that message. We must share that message because we've been given the most amazing message of reconciliation. So this must be our calling card. This is this is the thing that we should be known for is that we are reconcilers. We believe God. And so we reconcile. We promote the unity of His body.